0: Welcome back, everybody. So today we're going to be talking about imposter syndrome. We're going to uh, deviate a bit from topics surrounding trauma that we've talked about, I think, the last three podcasts or so. Um, So we're going to talk a bit about uh, imposter syndrome, what my experiences have been, what Emma's experiences have been, um, and then talking about as providers and specifically as therapists, how we navigate this particular type of uh, depression and then also how we navigate that with our clients. Uh, but first, here is a little bit about our practice. So Common Sense Mental Health is a, it's, it's basically the overhead for a group of private providers, uh, licensed mental health counselors, social workers, uh, and we operate within our own practices. And we provide uh, teletherapy throughout New York State. We also provide in-person therapy as well within the capital region. And all of our providers are competent in teletherapy. Uh, we specialize in video, phone, as well as text-based services. And some of our providers have their own practice that work with common sense. And in those practices, they may be overseeing uh, interns or um, sort of pre-licensed providers who are under limited permits uh, or something along those lines. Uh, But that is Common Sense Mental Health in a nutshell. Um, Any questions, you're always welcome to reach out and ask, and we will be happy to answer. All right, so uh, I'm here with Emma and Carlos, and we're gonna get started talking about imposter syndrome. So, uh, just to start off, um so generally, Carlos has uh, questions he'll do a little bit of research into a topic before we uh, before we meet, so he'll kind of ask certain questions here and there if say Emma kind of runs out of things that she's thinking of or uh, same for me he'll he'll jump in. and today we talked about imposter syndrome. He basically was like, "I've never experienced imposter syndrome before." Okay. so <laughs> apparently, he's immune to imposter syndrome okay. um unlike everyone else. <laughs> okay. so
1: uh, okay we're just gonna kind of wing it today no okay this is a more clinical topic i'm not a clinician so i don't i won't have much to say on the topic i have experienced imposter syndrome period
0: Okay. okay. period uh, period fair, that is that is fair enough <laughs> that's fair enough uh, all right so yeah so i guess i would like to kind of start i guess i want to start with us being kind of genuine and vulnerable If that's okay with you emma um, Absolutely. not that we haven't been in the last three podcasts, um, but, uh, yeah. So I guess kind of talking about our own experiences, how this is for us now. And then we can talk about, I guess, sort of ways that we navigate it and ways that we try to navigate this with our clients. I know that with my caseload, I have a number of clients. Um, and again, there's certain contextual factors that we'll, I guess we'll get into, but, uh, certain clients in certain contexts that experience this as well. And I can relate so much to a lot of what they say. So, um, yeah. So, I guess, what are your, what are your initial thoughts, Emma? That's cool.
2: That's um, I actually went through an interesting process this morning as I was, like, preparing for the podcast mm. because my initial reaction was, like, uh, imposter syndrome. I'm ready to talk about this. I'm, like, a professional with mm. imposter syndrome uh, just based on how much I experienced it. And probably in the last, like, hour or so before we started recording this, I started having imposter syndrome about my imposter syndrome. I, I knew like, you were well, going to say that. I, know, I knew I know you were going to say that. <laughs> it was like, well, can I actually talk about it? What if I haven't experienced it as bad as others? Or like, am I really just cause I've experienced it? Am I really the person to talk about it? And I absolutely got inside of my head. So I guess just case in point with how frequently I, I can experience imposter syndrome, um, something that can kind of comfort me is how universal it is mm-hmm. and Carlos you even just said earlier well this is more clinical and I'm not a clinician mm-hmm. I would push back on that a little bit because I think imposter syndrome maybe it's called different things in different contexts but it's such a universal experience that people have even mm-hmm. if it's just you know I'm I'm a receptionist and I'm scheduling doctor's appointments for people. Well, you know, who put me in charge of this highly educated doctor's schedule or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I, I can remember before I got into counseling, before I went to like grad school and everything, I worked at a CPA's office, felt like an imposter all the time. Cause it was like, I don't, I don't actually know what I'm doing. I'm just mm-hmm. doing the things that I've been taught. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very universal and that can sometimes help me feel a little bit better when I'm experiencing it with, you know, my, my peers. So separate from sessions, but, um, you know, I'm thinking of being in group supervisions and things like that, where maybe somebody is saying something that is just brilliant sounding or they're using clinical terms that I don't use. And I absolutely get stuck in my head and it's like, Oh my gosh, I'm probably doing that, but I don't, I don't label all my interventions by like specific names. And like, what if I'm, I'm not doing it right? And oh my God, who gave me this degree? Who who decided I could have a license? Who decided I could have clients? Uh, so it's nice when I then have more genuine conversations with those people mm-hmm. and they are going through the
1: same process for different things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I guess mm-hmm. hearing that, I guess I do have a question or two. um so i guess could imposter syndrome be used in a social environment like could like with me like i'm always surprised at the fact of now i'm gonna sound like i'm talking myself up but i'm always surprised at the fact that how much people like me in a social situation Mm -hmm. and like i always feel so awkward in it and i i never feel funny and i never feel like i'm i i don't feel like i'm interesting enough for people to like me Mm. and then i always hear the opposite Mm -hmm. so i guess is that imposter syndrome
0: i mean i i would say so i mean i feel like imposter syndrome and actually i was debating us pulling up like a sort of like dictionary definition to kind of go off Mm -hmm. of but i'm actually gonna hold off on that because i think we're gonna touch on more of it if we don't do that um yeah uh, I, I think I think it can, it can really apply to any context, Carlos. I think it's really with anything that you're doing and often it applies to professions just because I think, especially within our culture, within our society, one's profession is like a big deal, right? It's like yeah. what you do and it's like, you know, we, we, we carry that, we put, we put a lot of weight on that. Um, so I think with something socially, I, I absolutely I think it can apply to that. And, it, and it's essentially this notion that you do not have a certain level of expertise in a particular area. Or you don't have a particular set of skills or enough skill in a particular area, and people are expecting you to do this thing anyway. Mm-hmm. And feeling as though, okay, well, I don't know as much as the people around me. And here's the thing though, like the, the idea of that level of skill or the idea of knowing, you know, however much information, or like you were saying, I'm up, you know, clinical terms, whatever that might be. It, it, it's sort of this sort of made-up line that that we come up with, right? It's like we have this ideal, you know, so again, in your case, Emma, this ideal sort of ethical, informative therapist who is really good with the documentation, and they have an intervention for everything, and they're always working on a particular goal with a client, and all the things insurance companies like to pretend is the reality. And we do. We do that to a large extent. But, um, you know, it, it, it's not like that on paper. That's not actually how therapy works. And... Mm-hmm. Um... And I think same thing socially, Carlos. Where socially, people are awkward. People go into these situations most of the time, not knowing what they're doing or what they're going to say, and they're usually feeling anxious or nervous or various elements of that. But to us, we think that everyone else sort of has it together. Everyone else has Mm -hmm. met the sort of standard. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, basically.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, does that sound
1: pretty accurate? Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: So that's kind of what that was. Sort of a long-winded explanation, but I think that's kind of imposter syndrome. Um overall, it's that there's, again, this sort of set of standards that we're supposed to be meeting that we think everyone else meets. And mm-hmm. it's essentially kind of made up. It's, it's not necessarily based on reality. And other people are not meeting that. Right. Um, I
2: like that definition
0: a lot. Oh, I'm, I'm glad I could make up the definition. That, <laughs> that's, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, and I don't know if I, that's what like, the, the sort of dictionary yeah. definition is, but that's my understanding of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean for me it, it's it's been hard because I know I have experienced imposter syndrome a lot over the course of my career both as a counselor and now running a business and i mean yeah like even now doing a podcast right like it's like who's to say that we should be doing a podcast right now like Mm -hmm. who and there wasn't like a a sort of uh you know state employee who walked into my office and said you know well tim you've now reached you know level six of being a therapist you can now run a podcast and you know handed me all the tools to do it but i think we're taught and i don't know what what
1: that, that that uh term that you said the level six therapist makes me think of a quote from um a show i watch where it's the it's a drag queen and she's like i'm a level seven vegan and she's like <laughs> getting arrested by a cop it's a skit It was hilarious and sorry
0: well it, it's funny because I, I was actually thinking of pokemon in my mind i was like i was like evolving into like a new pokemon or oh something. yeah
1: that too yeah, yeah oh, that's what
0: my <laughs> mind was coming from but but yeah like so it's like it, it's the sense of like you know, that that's supposed to happen somehow. But yeah, and I, I it's been hard for me to come to terms with that that's not the reality, you know, that that's not how the world works. And I think, and again, I can't point to one thing or to, you know, one person or, but I think growing up, in a variety of ways, that's what I was taught, right? I was taught that you go to school, and again, there's a lot of like, again, there's a lot of privilege that gets wrapped up into this, but in my life, it was very much, you know, you're gonna go to school, you're gonna go to college, you're gonna get this degree, and then you're gonna be able to do this thing, and then you're gonna go and do this thing. And if you're good at doing that thing, you're worthy. If you're not good at doing that thing, you're a loser and a bum. And, yeah. and again, I'm being very, very judgmental right now, but like, that's that's kind of the, the sort of narrative. And I know, like, for example, my parents would outright disagree with that like neither of them you know sought to teach me that i'm not saying that they did um Mm -hmm. but i think just living within our culture within our society you absorb that you know through movies through media through our friends through you know observing other people and and we make up these narratives because we also only see the best of those other people and Mm -hmm. that's been perpetuated by social media which i won't go off on that but like that's You know, so I think there's lots of different factors that play in. And I know for me, that's definitely been the case where for a long time, and it's only now at 29 that I'm really, I actually feel like I'm really starting to challenge this notion that, um, other people are not always right. And usually they don't know what they're doing either. And usually I'm not being that unreasonable. If it's a boundary I want to set or if it's an issue that I'm having or, um, but it's, it's, it's hard to kind of figure that out and be in tune with that. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's still a lot of questioning, um. If that yeah if that makes any sense
2: Absolutely I think it's this whole like it's this weird transitional moment when suddenly you feel comfortable advocating for like in our cases like our clinical instinct or whatever whatever we want yeah. to call it um, And it's like it's very strange because within that there's almost this internal validation of like maybe I'm not a complete idiot. Like maybe I trust myself just so much yeah. Um, and I absolutely find it, and this probably is true for a lot of people, I will generally find it easier to advocate for something for my client's interest. If I think back to like previous Mm -hmm. work experiences Mm -hmm. where there may be programmatic changes, um, if it's something that was more staff oriented and maybe I thought it was dumb, I was way less likely to... Kind of like push back mm. it was something that directly impacted my clients mm. that's when i would kind of like i don't know if you want to call it that protective factor but one of my it sounds weird to say even but one of my strengths as a counselor is um mm. uh, like my my adherence to ethical guidelines and mm. i take it really seriously to do no harm to clients and mm. with that in mind yeah i will fight against something if i see it being harmful to my clients mm. um but even in that when I think back to that, and I was doing that, I I doubted myself so much, even when it was like, I'm doing the right thing. Mm. I would have to go to mentors or people I trusted and kind of, like, essentially, like, talk through, here's why I'm against this thing, or here's why I'm pushing back against something. Uh, does that make sense? Do I sound crazy? Mm. Is that unethical? Because mm. suddenly it was like, wait, if I'm trying to do no harm, am I now enabling my clients? Like, mm. am, am I not giving them... The space to whatever mm. um, so it's this whole interesting process and I, I definitely don't want it to seem like and now I've completed it I'm mm. done because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I still got plenty of imposter syndrome to go around mm. um, but it is really kind of empowering mm. I guess mm. to see like wow I can disagree with somebody clinically who I really, really, really respect. And it doesn't mean that their way is bad or wrong. It just means that, like, I also think I have a really good way. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So just going <sighs> with what you were saying, Emma, uh, I think what I, what I hear in that, and tell me if this sounds accurate, is you're acknowledging the complexities in the world. You're, 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 you're yeah. acknowledging that there's various layers and, and there isn't a right or a wrong, and it's not black or white. And I think that flies in the face of what depression, anxiety, imposter syndrome, what these things try to tell us and what they thrive off of. Right? I mean, depression yeah. thrives off of an all or nothing mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it really imposes that on people who have to navigate that. So, um, yeah, so I think what you're saying with that, and when you acknowledge that, I think that that really does start to break down the imposter syndrome. And again, exactly. I, I can't speak for everybody, but, um, or to what degree that that's effective, but. I think that is sort of a first step in trying to challenge that and saying, no, like, there's a lot of different outcomes here. And anyone who comes in, and this is another thing, um, and then we can break for a moment, but I think anyone who comes in and tries to suggest otherwise or who it sort of implies that there's an all or nothing or that this is the way, and it's funny, I wish I knew this, like, even five years ago, like, that is a that is a red flag. That person yeah. is already off base. They're yeah. already off base. They're already, you know, and not to say that, like, there aren't certain things in life that, yeah, certain things you do and certain things you don't do. But in general, you know, if someone is is consistently taking that approach with something, whether it's in your work or with us as therapists, um, mm-hmm. generally, that's already, they're already going off track. Um, yeah. Yeah. Heard the it's an from,
2: oversimplified way of, of looking
1: at the world.
0: Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, let's break for a moment. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Take a quick break, we'll
0: spotlight a counselor and we'll be right back. So uh, our highlight for today uh, is Paula Carsu. Uh She is a therapist, a licensed mental health counselor who works with Common Sense Mental Health in her own practice. Uh, she's currently taking CDPHP and Beacon. Uh, and then besides that, she, she she takes uh, self-pay clients. She currently has open slots right now. Um, she is going full-time with our practice in the coming weeks and months and paula is also she's very and i think this is the case with a lot of our therapists but she's very client-centered in that she allows a client to dictate uh, their their work and treatment she believes that they are the best expert in terms of themselves uh and her role is more so just to provide a space for them to process their worldviews and their perceptions and to give feedback where she has some expertise um, but she's all about the client leading the work uh, she also has experience in substance use uh, therapy, um, as well as focusing on trauma uh, and working with couples and families. Um, so yeah, so she's, a, she's a great clinician. Um, and like I said, she's currently taking clients. All right, we're back. So uh, I think actually Carlos has some questions to follow up on on uh, talking about imposter syndrome.
1: Yeah, I guess I do have stuff to say. Um, so I guess I we can start with uh, what cause, What do you think causes imposter syndrome? Is it something that you, you just develop over the years just naturally, or is it something that you, you learn because of the way you're, like, spoken to or the way you're treated by peers or mentors? Do
0: huh. you want to go so first, go or should I? <laughs>
1: you, you're about to go.
0: I heard um, the wrap up. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's definitely not a natural progression to it. Um uh uh there are definitely people, places, and things that are I think are definitely responsible yeah. um for, for developing um and, and and it's just a side note, and I think most of our listeners know, um, Carlos. In addition to being our practice manager, is also my my life partner. Um, so he has been with me through actually the course of my profession. Actually, we started we <laughs> started seeing each other before I was you even were an intern. I wasn't even an intern You weren't yet. even an
1: intern. You were still in school. I
0: was in grad school only. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you've been with me through the progression of my career. Um, so he I'm has. my imposter syndrome. And my, and my. Yes, exactly. You've yeah, been there for every my. Every step of the way. <laughs> every step of the way that my imposter syndrome has grown and flourished and been watered and bloomed, uh, Carlos has, has been there to watch it happen. Um, so that, anyway, so if you hear him chuckling, that's why. Yeah, this um,
1: question's a little personal and I, I already know the answer to it. So I'm just like listening and.
0: Just looking to stir the pie. You're like, you're getting all like sensational right now. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: yeah.
0: So, uh, yeah, so no, so definitely. Um, there, there are definitely things that, that happen, but I do think it is a slow progression. I don't think it's something that happens overnight. Um, I think there probably are a series of traumas and even professional traumas that, that come up and happen. Um, and that may be a sort of like highlights or, or sort of key factors. But in general, I mean, and here's the thing, like, I can relate to it as a therapist. I know, Emma, I, I know you can as well. Um, but I have close friends of mine in various fields um, navigating jobs and and whether it's you know through their management or through their colleagues or through the job itself or even their customers where uh i mean they're navigating legitimate abuse they're navigating legitimate verbal abuse and micromanagement and and various different issues all of those things that i guess is my other point too is that i think imposter syndrome can, can grow in so many different uh, I'm going to go with, like, a nice plant analogy. Um, it, it can grow in so many different types of soil, right? It's like, uh-huh. I'm really impressed with how I came up with that. Um, but it's like, you know, there's, there's various different dysfunctional and, I think, abusive dynamics that can lead to imposter syndrome. And it can be a whole combination of things over time. And it happens, I think it can happen, again, we talked about this uh, when we started, uh, it can happen in any profession. You know, it can happen, you know, within any job, uh, within any context, um, Yeah. So, anyway, what are your thoughts, Emma? I'm going to keep going
2: on. I think – no, I hear you. I think – I agree with everything you're saying, but I also think um, mundane interactions can have such a huge influence on each of us individually. Mm. And I'm thinking specifically just in my experience, um, even in grad school, I I don't – I obviously do not think that they were trying to, like, traumatize us and make us feel inept as counselors. So I'll make that nice and clear. But I think through really well-intentioned normalizing of imposter syndrome or normalizing of the fact that we all were about to be graduating or, you know, going into our internship and then graduating and being the counselor, um, so many professors, I remember kind of saying, you know, you're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to know everything. It's okay to get supervision. Supervision is your greatest tool. And all of these things, which I have the ability to twist into, I'm not going to be good enough mm. without the influence of others. Right. Um, which, again, that is absolutely not at all what they were saying. Right. Um, it was really right. just very appropriate normalization and good ethics. Mm. We need supervision, so use it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that in many ways it did help me because I know even as an intern, as a pre-licensed clinician still now, um, one of my strengths in supervision is I, I don't believe in choosing the cases where I, you know, in quotes, did well. Mm. I don't want to highlight the thing that I did really well for my supervisor to go, oh yeah, that sounds like you did well. I want to highlight the times where I feel completely lost with a client, the times I feel like I really messed something up Mm -hmm. because I want to improve and get better and I need assistance with that. Not because I'm not skilled enough, but because all these different perspectives are super important in kind of like building a good clinician. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that the message I received in grad school was helpful, but I, I can't imagine I'm the only person who heard all of that and, you know, kind of had that seed planted for imposter syndrome? If we're going with the plant analogies,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think for me, like what popped up for me is you were because I I, 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 definitely recall that as well. I would say that our professors mm-hmm. did a really good job again, at mm-hmm. least it, within within my cohort. And again, for those who don't know, I was went to the same counseling the same counseling master's program that Emma Cranston did, except I was a year ahead, so I, I was a mm-hmm. cohort, cohort before yours and yeah. the professor did a really good job of giving that disclaimer right i heard that so many times like listen, yeah. you're gonna learn here but you're not gonna learn everything you need to know you will learn i can't count how many times they said how much you know you're gonna learn more when you're un, in the field than yeah. here and at the time i was like well, then, what the fuck am I paying? You for? <laughs> and, 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 and like, I didn't like ever say that, of course, but like, but now I get it, because obviously that basis was needed, you know. And I know yeah. we talked about before we had an awesome counseling program, mm-hmm. um, and I would highly recommend to anyone looking to go into counseling. But yeah. Um, yeah, at the time I was like, well, no, I should be able to know everything by the end of this. I should be mm-hmm. able to know what I'm doing, and there's just no way to do that. There's no way mm-hmm. to achieve that. Um, and I think our professors try to kind of give us that warning, but the issue was that I think then and now, we're, again, we're submersed in a lot of other messages. And then mm-hmm. we end up in jobs where, you know, there's additional messages that get sort of muddled in and mixed in. Um, yeah. You know, so I think it's, it's interesting because, yeah, I think you're right, that, that definitely I know our program tried to kind of address that. Um, and then there's that sort of, you know, thought in my head, you know, when being told, well, you know, you're going to need X, Y, and Z, and you're not going to know. There's a part of me that was like, hold my beer wait a second like <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I you know I you know yeah maybe they don't know what they're doing but I'm gonna go out into mm-hmm. this and I'm and I'm gonna be the most ethical like competent yeah. and really just setting myself up like really mm-hmm. just like and what a like a shitty thing to do to oneself but like really just setting oneself up to and again it's something that you're not conscious of right like, I, exactly yeah right like, I wasn't sitting there thinking and if anything there was a part of me that was understanding it then too and was like oh yeah I'm all about you know supervision and learning and I got it but I really didn't And, Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's the sort of setup, right? That's the sort of pre-setup that, you know, we either do to ourselves or we have other people kind of doing with us. Um, and then it just takes one crappy clinical supervisor or one crappy colleague or, you know, and then the house of cards starts to fall, you know, then it starts to kind of unravel a bit. Um, and that's where the trauma begins to happen. Um, -hmm. I mean, what does that go for you, Emma? What what are your your thoughts? Actually,
2: this whole time you're talking, I'm just kind of like... And we got to do a whole other podcast just kind of talking about work environments uh, because that's kind of what's coming up for me. (laughs) Um, I can think of countless experiences that kind of like triggered my imposter syndrome, Mm. uh, just in like previous work experiences and being honest, even in my current work experience, Mm. not because again, anyone is intentionally doing that. And I can say that with confidence, especially now, um, but you mentioned earlier, like some of the abusive dynamics that can play out in some job environments and mm. yeah, it's a huge, huge trigger for the imposter syndrome. And it's, it's kind of, and well, no, I don't want to say it is, but it can be very much weaponized mm. and, and I'm not quite even sure how I want to say it, but very much like turned against you as the counselor. Mm. Um, Does that make sense?
0: It does, it does. And I I, I have two things. One, the latter is a question. Um, Mm -hmm. First, I think it's important that we're talking about this element of it, right? So we're talking about, again, all these different factors that play into imposter syndrome, but the work environment piece, and I think you're right, and that's actually a good idea. I think we'll have a later podcast that that focuses on that. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but But to dive into that for a moment here, I think the workplace environment piece is huge and it's important that we're talking about this because I can tell you right now that other providers who are listening to this and whether it's our clients that are, happen to be listening or, again, even other mental health providers especially, I think a lot of people can relate to this and this is the part that does not get talked about. And I can yeah. tell you right now, I'm going to say something very dramatic, but it's, it's true. There are mental health practices and, and agencies across even just the state, let alone, in general, and this, this is just looking at the field of counseling where I'm just looking at this from a therapist point of view, um, not talking about other, you know, job fields. Um, this happens all the time. There are very abusive dynamics. There are people in our field that are not only not really helping their clients in the ways that they should be, but there's people in our field who are not supporting their colleagues or their supervisees in the way that they should be. And it Mm -hmm. it happens all over. And I think in a lot of cases, um, these are dynamics that are not even identified or even well understood, right? It's not like someone's sitting there going, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in and and you know, totally mess up this agency I work with." But I think there are things that play out based on all of our traumas and histories that really get muddled in, and um, yeah. And then I think you have you know counselors again. That's what I can speak to. You have counselors who are faced with that, whether early in their careers or um, you know just while they're working in that particular place they're faced with that and then that plays into their imposter syndrome um absolutely you know so i think it's really important you're talking about this because i think this is common but like abuse in general right like even within relationships Mm -hmm. it's not talked about we don't identify Mm -hmm. it that way it gets very uncomfortable It gets very sticky um Mm -hmm. you know even me saying this right now it's like there's that even though like i'm not being specific at all there is this, this part of me that's like oh my gosh am i gonna like get in trouble for and it's like but that's that's what that's what that comes with, right? And that's why yeah. it's actually very important that we're talking about this. Um, and my hope is that other providers listening can relate to that and can think about that and and can, you know, do something with that. Um, and again, I think this applies to job fields all over. Again, I, I work you know work with, and I, I have close friends who are in you know marketing and sales and accounting and you know and there is there's a lot of dysfunctional dynamics that play out in in the US, in the the US workspace. Um,
2: Uh
0: Yeah, anyway, but yeah, so, but my other question to you is, is (laughs) is gonna sound funny after me going on that (laughs) long-winded speech. Um, Can you say more about that specifically in terms of um, not having to get any any specifics? um, I know we have to take a break in a second, so we can maybe come back to it, but kind of coming back to um, sort of what happens in that then? Like what happened, like what happened for you? in that mm-hmm. if that makes sense like where did that end up going for you what and i guess yeah what did that look like in terms of um trying to find the wording that you used what was the wording that you had you had used it was um weaponized. Uh, I, well weaponized but, but in taking on responsibility that's what it was taking on responsibility for things whether it was with your clients or mm-hmm. taking on responsibility for things that really probably weren't yours to take on I oh, basically right. i want to hear more about that and the impacts of that that's sure. if mm-hmm. that makes sense
1: mm-hmm. yeah um, we'll
0: but we do have to take a break.
1: Well, let's, let's finish that topic and then, and then we'll, and is that then okay? We'll, yeah, yeah. Okay. We'll break. Okay. Carlos, oh, so you know how long I can talk.
2: So. <laughs> I Sorry know, I know, know. <laughs> we'll be
1: pushing it, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so oh. kind of to the piece about what it was like for me when it felt like I was kind of taking on responsibility for things that I shouldn't have, um, ways that that happened would be things like, Hey, Emma, the client that you're working with, it is in quotes messing up or is not improving or hey they mm. did this thing why <laughs> haven't you been working <laughs> on that with them it's kind of like uh yes i i don't know why he or she did that we should ask them like
0: <laughs> <laughs> you want to bring them in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like i don't
2: really know um and i can say that now and laugh and kind of say haha yeah why would i know but i can also tell you that earlier on in my career If somebody like peer to peer or Mm. above came to me saying, Hey, why is your client doing that? It it very much was like, Emma, what, what aren't you doing to help this client? And that's exactly how I would, I would take it as well. So if somebody came to me and said, Hey, why'd your client do this? I'd start, well, you know, in session we've been focusing on such and such, maybe I should have been focusing more on blah, blah, blah. And, It it immediately went to, how could I have made this not happen? Or how could I have forced somebody to be better? Whatever that means, in quotes. (laughs) Um, With time, I've absolutely learned that no matter how good my work is with somebody, they are still their own person. Um, If I, I mean, I'm sure there are ways I could manipulate my clients into presenting in a way that Makes me feel better. Mm. Like, oh, mm. we're avoiding the the unnecessary stuff in session so you know, we don't have to do that trauma processing. So look, mm. they look fine. Mm. But does that fit with my ethics? Obviously, absolutely not. Mm. No, that's terrible. Um, but I've learned that I actually can't control my clients at all. Mm. Even can? if previous, jo- I mean, honestly, I can't. You really can. yeah it's mind-blowing yeah Uh, so just it it became so normalized and it actually took me such a long time to realize wait that's not my I don't want to say that's not my problem like I don't care Mm. Uh, because of course I want my clients to excel and be well and safe and all of that but I I can't hold something that was never mine Mm. yeah if that makes sense
0: yeah Yes.
2: Does that help clarify some? Like does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Oh, it makes total <laughs> okay, sense.
0: Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes total sense. I so I have some additional thoughts, but I'm going to actually wait until we do have a break cuz it, it may actually deviate, deviate us away a little bit. Um gotcha. Carlos, do you have questions or follow-up questions for Emma? Um or in general? It'll
1: it'll be um it'll be long so i (laughs) think i'll mention it after the break and then we'll like dive back into that and then we'll do your little okay that
0: sounds good we'll be back so today we're going to highlight emma cranston she is a licensed mental health counselor with common sense uh she runs her own practice and she is full-time in her own practice and primarily specializes in Uh, client-centered therapy. Um, uh, Specifically, she subscribes to, I believe, although she can correct me if I'm wrong, um, I believe more so like a sort of like uh, Carl Rogers approach. Um, She also is a bit structured in her approach and uh, we'll use CBT techniques and, and sort of other structured assignments with her clients. But generally, she believes in her clients leading the session. And she's very, um, and having supervised her in a variety of capacities, I can speak to this, she is very flexible with her clients and meeting them where they're at and letting them define their own goals. Um, so overall, great therapist to work with. Uh, and she's currently taking CDPHP insurance. She'll be taking more insurance panels. Uh, probably in the months and years to come, but right now she's taking CDPHP as well as self-pay clients um, and, of course, offers tele and tele-only for the time being. Welcome back. So we are going to continue our discussion on imposter syndrome, and I believe we broke off. Carlos, you had some follow-up questions.
1: Yeah. Um, So specifically when, Emma, when you said um, you had an experience where your someone said to you why did your client do that um Mm -hmm. and in my mind it's like why is your supervisor expecting you to you know fix the client why is your supervisor expecting you to like be a puppeteer of your client Mm -hmm. like maybe you're just there to actually just help your client and not actually (laughs) control every single action that they do yeah your client Mm -hmm. may go off base surprise Mm -hmm. like they're human (laughs) so um Yeah, if you wanted to speak on
0: that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I have some thoughts, and and Emma, I'm sure you do too. Um, I think part of this is, it's part of a larger issue, though. I don't think there's like, you know, I I don't think that in environments like this, that is the thought process. It's not that people are consciously thinking that we can fix people. I think there's a larger expectation within, and again, I can only speak within New York State, but I believe this probably applies in other places, um, where I think there are government oversight agencies, which, by the way, again, not to get political, I'm all about regulation, I'm all about our profession being regulated, so I'm not at all advocating that it's not. But I think there are government agencies, I think there's insurance companies, and I think there's a lot of business that gets imposed on our work, right? There's a lot of business. And it's hard to see where that can't be the case because otherwise, how do you pay for services? right? So it's like it gets into a lot of ethical and philosophical debates and questions. Mm-hmm. But I think we are in an environment where it's sort of set up that way, you know, where insurance companies are looking for, you know well we want to see you know concrete progress. We want to see you know how is this person reducing symptoms? Okay. And it's very, you know, they want they want to treat it very much like it's a, it's like you know someone has a broken leg and they healed from it. you know, mm-hmm. it's 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 supposed to be this very concrete thing. And I think that happens in a lot of agencies, and especially you non know, for profit agencies and, and, and larger facilities where there is government oversight where they have the insurance companies the answer to, but they also have government agencies that do not have um, the most realistic expectations. Um, as we're talking about all this, you know, we've been very careful about who, you know, who we name and, and not getting the details about past experiences, which I think makes total sense. I will be very blunt though. Um, a good example of this is uh, Oasis within within New York State. Um, it's a good example of a of a oversight agency in my view and as other therapists who may disagree and I, you know, may or may not get slack for this, but, you know, it is what it is. But in my experience, my professional experience working for agencies that were overseen by OASIS, um, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of, you know, kind of holding money over, you know, heads. And um, it's all about who you know. And, you know, it's not this, you know, you know, uh, sort of clean, ethical agency. Right. Uh, I'm not saying they don't do good. I believe that they do. There's other states with other problems that don't have you know, that same kind of oversight, but, um, Oasis, um, I definitely have had some negative experiences as personally and agencies I've worked for, I know did too. They,
1: sorry, they overdo it a little bit.
0: Basically. Uh, um, yeah, that's like, that's... It, it's
1: needed, but it's like, calm down. <laughs> well, it's one
0: of those things, so, so, so again, this is where this is, this, I'm just going to use this as just one example. Again, there's many examples of this. I'm not trying to scapegoat Oasis or any particular agency, but a good example right. of this. And, you know, Emma, I think you've navigated this too with, with places you've worked at where, you know you have this government agency that has expectations of the agency and those expectations get passed down to the therapist and to the clients right Mm -hmm. you have to have you have to maintain a certain number of beds filled you have to maintain a certain completion rate for your clients you have to you know so there's all these different markers right that come up and markers that if they're not met that particular government agency will come in and start you know and there could be many reasons why you're not meeting those markers but they will see it as an issue with the work that you're doing um I remember one story um talk about imposter syndrome i remember i would uh uh when i was uh overseeing this one agency that that i worked for uh i remember coming in one morning and i would usually i would come in early because i would um it, things were very overwhelming things were you know we were understaffed and, and you know underfunded as it as it was so i would come in early because it was usually quieter and i would come in to answer emails and do follow-up so this one morning i did that i get there at like seven fifteen. And um, this particular government agency that I'm referring to, a couple of their reps were there. They, they, they had just shown up, and I, I forgot what the issue was. There were issues like throughout the course that I was there, because uh, clients will call and complain, and then you know they will take that at face value and then come in. And sometimes the client had a legitimate complaint. Other times, you know, there's other dynamics. So something had happened. They show up, and um, it, again, it wasn't anything notable that I can even recall. But I remember going into my office, and I remember. So for that you know morning that was like really precious to get you know, some of this work done and, and based on the pressure that the agency was under and the work we were doing, they, they talked to me about for literally 45 minutes, the name of a particular group that we were running at the time. And, and Emma, you worked at the same agency, so I know, I think you probably know what uh-huh. I'm talking about. Um, and, and they were talking about the name of this group. Um, so we would had a group that um, basically the name of it they felt was, was sort of shame-based. It was focusing on like criminal thinking patterns and behaviors for clients navigating substance use disorders. And I think the name of the group was like criminal thinking group or something like that. It was, you know, and it was uh, it, it was okay. So I remember they sat there with me, Emma, and they, they, they talked to me for about 45 minutes to an hour about the name of this one group. And they weren't even there for that. reason. That wasn't even why they were there. They were there for something else. Uh-huh. Um, but they were, they were, they were, they were there and just talking about this and like that. That creates that sets the stage, right? Like that, right there. That's just one of many, many examples. That uh-huh. sets the stage, though, for I think the expectations and not knowing what those expectations are, and then trying to meet them. And then feeling shame while you're doing it because I remember when they left that meeting, I felt like I was the worst director for allowing mm-hmm. this group to operate with this kind of a name, you know. So mm-hmm. such shame base. Granted, funny thing is I remember that group was actually one of the most popular groups among our clients, and they loved it. Um, and they got a lot out of it. There's a lot of material in it. Um, but um, but yeah, I remember like and like. Meanwhile, again, the agency is underfunded, it's understaffed. I have, you know, I remember I had therapists in my office crying, you know, half the time because they were just so overwhelmed and overworked. And yet here we are talking about the name of this group, you know? So like that, I think, sets the stage for these expectations. And then I think managers feel that. I think, you know, whatever, however that agency structure is, right, whether it's a director or whoever, that sort of upper management staff feels that, and then that gets passed down to the therapist. And I think it creates this sort of domino effect, right? Yeah, Um, absolutely. So again, I went off on that story, but like that's, that is how these, I think that's how these dynamics really form. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know I'm not alone with that. I know that there are other managers and other programs that face the exact same thing by either the state or an insurance company and it's completely irrelevant to the work completely irrelevant to what you're actually doing with the client it's irrelevant to their progress it's irrelevant to what they're getting out of that and they're whether it's a processing trauma or you know trying to navigate a substance use disorder, or if you're working for a program within the uh the uh omh the office of mental health system you know the working Mm -hmm. at whatever like you're you're not actually focusing on the work
1: Um, right yeah, um, are those people that mentioned that to you? Were they like clinically trained in any way? Like, did they have reason for like? So yeah, so I think a lot of valid reasons.
0: So I think in move? a lot of cases they they are. Honestly, I think that they are. I remember the one. I remember the one woman. Um, I won't name her by name here, but um, to this day, like I I. Uh, if i see her i like i have a reaction um she specifically withheld funding from this agency that work for for a long time um my understanding although this is rumor to me um that agency received funding after she retired so finally like when she was gone they finally got like more backing but when i was there i remember we fought for years to get the kind of funding we needed to to work with our clients and to lower case loads and and to you know make our system work better and um she just and, and the issue was that she um She had dynamics with a previous director that worked there right so she was going off of things that weren't even happening anymore they were with people that weren't even present anymore and i just remember she would hold up everything she did not work with our agency at all and she was one of the ones in that meeting she would you know Mm -hmm. and and many others i remember i just remember her name all the time um (laughs) she was the one in the way and Uh um so to go off your question carlos i know in her case she was once a therapist like 30 years prior, but she was once a therapist, and I think a lot of these individuals, um, again, whether working for insurance companies, I think that's also the case, they try to, which makes sense to me, right, they're trying to pick people with that expertise to be the ones, you know, judging and assessing what you're doing, that makes sense, Um, but it, I I think, unfortunately, it doesn't account for all the other dynamics at play, um, if that makes sense. Uh
1: Um,
0: Uh-huh. Does that answer your question, Carlos? Yeah. Yeah. I was just
1: curious.
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Any any thoughts, Emma? Anything that's coming up for you as we're talking about this?
2: A ton of reactions. I, I just, I remember the entire situation that you're even talking about. I was the one running that group. And I just remember when you came mm. to me and said, like, hey, was that you? Yeah. Oh, it was my group. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I just remember wow. I was one of those counselors that was so overwhelmed. Cannot count how many times I was crying to you. Like,
0: it wasn't I, just you, by the way.
2: Oh, I know, because no I had the crying corner <laughs> in my office. So I mean, there's plenty of people with me too. Uh, but I just remember you saying, like, "Hey, just so you know, next cycle, you know, this the name of this group has to change." And all of my tact was gone by that point, and I was just like, "Why? Like, what the fuck? Yeah, really?" And to be clear, I I would not be against changing a name if it was shape based. You know, like I'm. I'm not saying I want to guilt people or anything like that um, but kind of my perspective on the group because it was called criminal thinking group it was not y'all are bad and you're all criminals and unworthy of love or anything like that <laughs> it was you know we're looking at criminal like thought patterns and right. it, the group framed it that way like we would break down our, like our identity around that do I identify because some guys would legitimately hold it very dear that like no, I need to identify with a criminal. And mm. even if I want more strengths-based, positive psychology, it was important for them that they not forget their past. And like mm. We could work on framing it in different ways, but the purpose of the group was primarily psychoeducational. Mm. And it was psycho-ed about criminal-like thought patterns. Mm. So mm. to have it named to something, it was fine, but it no longer actually told people what the group was.
0: What, what, what was the new name?
2: New Beginnings.
0: New Beginnings Group. Okay, that's right.
2: I, I remember that
0: now. I, I appreciate you. I remember that. I remember them bringing that up in my office, and I remember like do you, do you, I, again. I always say this, and I and I do it like eighteen times a session. Not to get political, but um, that's going to be like come kind of like a phrase of a yeah. podcast. Not to get political, we'll but t shirts
1: for it. We'll get t shirts. Remember that
0: that scene with. Um, a th- I think it was Hillary Clinton who was, um, she was undergoing like the Benghazi investigation or something. And she has her head in her hand. And they're like, there were memes (laughs) about it. That was me at my desk. Like, I just had my head in my hand just like waiting for this meeting to end. And they're going on about newbie. It's coming back to me now that you're sharing that. Uh Um, But here's the thing, right? So as that's all happening, people were dying. People are dying. Right. Uh-huh. And we specifically, I know we worked within substance use, so we're talking about that example. But I'm, again, I'm, I know these dynamics apply in other yeah. agencies and, and other parts, whether it's within our state or probably within our country. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, people were dying and we were not actually talking about the real work, right? We were talking about, and again, this is a, an example of that sort of like managed care problem where the focus was on the appearance. It was on the perception. It was with this name. Yes. and. It was not actually addressing the problems that I think you know our agency was probably facing at that time or again, what other agencies face in similar positions. Yep. Um, so I think that's what happens on that larger level. So then translate that down, right? And that's what therapists are then fi- are faced with. Well, it's like, well, why didn't you fix the client? Because if your completion rate isn't at this point, that means there's something that you're doing. And that means that this thing isn't happening over here, which means that as an agency, we're gonna get shit for this. And like, yep. it, it all interconnects with that. Um, yep. Yeah.
2: It does very much come down to, you just said, it's all about appearances, and it can very easily turn into that even in your work with a client, which Mm. is probably the last thing I would ever want in my work with a client, right? Like, Mm. if I think ethical, competent counseling, I don't think, oh, we want to just make me look good. Mm. Like, no, the, the two, my worth as a counselor is actually not dictated by like in quotes, how good my client is doing. That does not mean that as a counselor, you're not working to help that client improve their life. Mm. But I'm, I'm not failing. If I have a client that is just not in a space to do some work, like, yeah, maybe I can focus on building some rapport for a while Mm. longer or, you know, whatever. Maybe I have to refer out. Maybe it's just an inter, you know, for some reason we're just not vibing and that's okay. Um, I say I say that's okay, but I also know that I totally personalize it when I'm not vibing with a yeah. client and they want to work elsewhere. Well, but like, but oh again, but this
0: is the worst. but this is where some of that comes from, though, right? It's like when you're not yeah. vibing. So again, we can learn that. Okay, well, there's many factors at play. Maybe there's something I could explore with a client. Maybe there's something I I could bring up where I'm not doing. You know, and I can I can look at that um, among these other possibilities. In that framework, though, that we just described within that work environment, those aren't the options. The option mm-hmm. is that no, you didn't do something. Why didn't you fix right.
2: this? If my client is demonstrating symptoms mm. of their diagnosis, it's my fault.
0: Yeah.
2: Yes. And that is crap. Like, yes. it, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So even kind of transitioning into private practice, um, if we think of something like a diagnosis of depression, mm. that shit's cyclical. Yeah. Like, yeah, we can work with a lot of tools to, to kind of challenge some of our thought patterns and, you know, get some nice self-care techniques to try to increase the length of time in between my episodes, but mm. I'm not going to tell a client, like, okay, you and I are going to work together and then we're going to fix this and you'll be fixed. And no one can see the air quotes, but they're all over the place as I'm talking. <laughs> and they are. I can, I can attest to that, yes. so. But, like, I would never be able to tell a client that because then I'm just lying to them. Mm. Like, that I can't, um, we try to make improvements yeah. and that's as far as we can go. And I can't make the improvements for you. Mm. We yeah. can work on them together, but it's in a sense, it's on that client. Like, and I don't mean that in a pressure, like it's on you, it's all on you, but just, we have to be working together. Mm. Um, and I know even that mentality of having the answers, um, has often triggered my imposter syndrome so you know Mm -hmm. if a client shows up to session and we've had four sessions and they show up and say well Emma I've seen you four times not feeling any better (laughs) (laughs) I could absolutely have the moment of like oh shit I haven't done the best and then I have to remind myself again like well I can I can you know teach some coping skills but the client has to apply them Mm. Or, you know, whatever. I need to know the issue we're working on before I can have an influence however I want to frame it. But the reality is uh, my influence only goes so far. Mm. Uh, And the more I remind myself of that, the more it actually helps me cope with my imposter syndrome.
0: Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. That makes some sense. Well, I think it goes back to what we identified earlier, that when you acknowledge the complexities, right, when you acknowledge that there's many things that could be at play... Um, And yeah, and a client coming in and and, and saying something like that, they're probably, then. what that tells me is that as a therapist, then it's like, oh, we got to review the expectations of therapy. Absolutely. You know, like that is what that, and and that could be a number of things. And maybe there's something legitimately that is not happening in the work that the client was hoping for. And maybe you need to figure, you know, you and the client need to figure out what that is and then do that. But it can also just be the expectations it can it can be just yeah a whole bunch of things um uh-huh. the person's just being mean <laughs> it's just like there's like there's uh-huh. many different things yeah. that could be at play and mm-hmm. um but yeah imposter syndrome does not take all that into account um right yeah Yeah.
2: something that's helped a lot in challenging it is just um this is probably one of the most valuable things i got from supervision uh actually it might have been you who told me this time uh so that's good job cool. uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> here we go But um, just essentially, like, to keep on checking in with the client. Um, Really, like, frequently, hey, how are our sessions going? Mm. How do you feel about the work that we're doing? Um, Are there areas that, like, you felt like I've missed the mark? And it's uncomfortable. Like, I'm not – I'm fragile, man. I don't want to hear how poorly I've Mm. done. But I do want to because if I need to know – how to improve, I actually need to know the issue. Right. Like it's not helpful if I never ask my client how I'm doing. And I just kind of like, I'm winging it through life, hoping I'm helping. Mm. Uh, like the, that's where, in a sense, my imposter syndrome is much more justified. Like mm. I don't even know if I'm doing it right. So right. Um, right. yeah, so that's helped a lot. Mm. And it allows me to get constructive criticism. I will totally own that I'm more uncomfortable if a client gives me praise. Then I'm kind of like, oh, that's not necessary. That's not what I was looking for. I'm really just just trying to be better. That's all. That's all good things.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, uh-huh. I have some additional thoughts to add to what you're talking about, but I do uh-huh. think we need to take a quick break.
1: Well, let's, uh, yeah, let's uh, You do your thoughts, and I think it's, we can wrap it up. We're, oh, okay. we're, we're hitting that mark
0: okay yeah. so i should keep going
1: keep going and then we'll wrap it up do one last spotlight and call it a
0: day every time carlos signals to me to do a break and then i go to like initiate the break he then tells me that there was no break so <laughs> i'm just putting that out there
1: oh really
0: yeah because okay. like he pointed to the sign like break one minute um, and so I i'm gonna break to, i pointed and then... to
1: that sign eight minutes ago Okay. <laughs> when we needed the <laughs> break, so. All right. Okay. Thank you. Um,
0: okay. So I guess to the, 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 come back into that. So I, yeah. I, and I think what happens, so this is, again, I, I keep saying this, but I think this is where it does really apply probably across fields and across professions. And like when, when imposter syndrome plays out in that way. It, it, I can hear just even as you're talking about that, how it limits us, right? Yeah. It's like it can either lead to us. So in some ways, I think imposter syndrome can actually, I don't say it's a good thing because it's not, but it can play off of what's probably a healthy anxiety of, okay, I need to be self-aware. What am I doing? I need to make sure that yeah. I'm doing this right. Like that's all, that's, that's good. And I think those are aspects of a good, in our case, you know, therapist, but um but i think that it can also lead to people not just burning out i think that's kind of oversimplifying it but it can lead yeah. to people like you said that it's hard to take compliments it's hard to take criticism so it's okay. hard to get any kind of feedback and, it, and uh-huh. it it leaves you in this place where you really can't operate to the degree that you would like to or that you would expect um not because you're not capable and not because you're not skilled but it's because this imposter syndrome is in the way it's 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 dictating it's it's that lens that you're looking at everything through, yeah. so um, I think here you describe that kind of how that you know will play out for you, and I can relate to all of that. All, that's been all very similar for me. Um, I think that that is how how it ha- has impacts, and it's interesting because then off of that, I think it's one thing. It's, it's, it's I say one thing, but it's it's interesting where I have had clinicians start with so, for example, I've started with the common sense, right? Looking to have their license, looking to start their own practice, um, they start working with us and in that process, they talk about imposter syndrome or it's kind of clear where that's coming up for them. And if anything, I actually, even though I then kind of know, okay, there could be some issues, you know, in these various ways based on that, I'm actually kind of heartened to hear that because then I'm like, okay, well, then they're probably good at what they do. Because what uh-huh. the, 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 the massive irony of, well, certainly of depression, anxiety and other things, but imposter syndrome is that that narrative, it's usually the opposite, right? It's like the fact that you're having that narrative to begin with, is because you're a good therapist. It's because you're worried about messing up. Uh-huh. And you've been made to worry by various factors and there's some healthy anxiety there and there's all these different things that we're talking about. But you're a good therapist because of those things. And yeah. so that, it's almost like that imposter syndrome is, is actually sort of indicating that. And again, I think that's the case in probably a lot of professions. Um, I, I keep picking on a friend of mine who's, who's in sales, but she navigates something very similar where um you know, I think for her, she is really good at what she does. She does really good at sales, but she is in part because she's, you know, concerned about what she does and she takes it seriously and she, you know, crosses her T's and dots her I's, as, as they say. Um, but then she spends the rest of her evening anxious about what she just did. And then okay. it's like, and then you can see where she's having to kind of suffer through that. And that's what's not okay, right? Then we've exited sort of the healthy anxiety realm. And now we're into this realm of, okay, no, like, you don't deserve, even if you were bad at what you did, you don't deserve this. You do not deserve okay. to be you know so wrapped up so i appreciate you kind of going into that emma because i think it does highlight um again certain the the outcomes and and, uh, certain impacts that it has
1: yeah Mm
2: -hmm. all about transparency
0: man
1: yeah yeah i actually hit on one of my questions before where uh, when you said that it's not healthy Mm. and one of my questions was is a little bit of imposter syndrome healthy right
0: (laughs) Yeah, and, and I think that's where, like, you can argue that, it, I mean, there, there is, again, there's some healthy anxiety in that. I hesitate to call imposter syndrome healthy. Right. But, yeah, there's healthy anxiety because, yeah, if you went into your profession or your job, and and here's the thing, and, and there there are individuals who do this, right, where they don't have to deal with imposter syndrome, but they think, I'm going to be explicit here, they think they're the shit. Like, they think that they yeah. are, like, they are, you know, they got this, they are, you know, and that, that they're all that. And they make errors, and then they don't look at those errors or deal with them, or they get defensive when they're called out on those mm-hmm. errors, right? Or they, you know,
2: exactly,
0: you know, so it's like, that's not good. So they're, they're not having any anxiety, but okay. they're also not really looking at what they're doing. Um, so I think there was some healthy anxiety in that where you're, you're looking at that and, and going, okay, you know, you're acknowledging that you absolutely can't mess up. And but then what does it mean to mess up? What kind of weight do we give it? How do we okay. understand that? That's okay. where I think the imposter syndrome really goes astray. Um, yeah. If I and sense.
2: I think, like, to your question, Crows, mm-hmm. I want to just second everything Kim was saying, because, yeah, I think that, you know, do I love the imposter syndrome I experience? No, not, no, not <laughs> at all. But, <laughs> but at the same time, as silly as it sounds, I'm also really grateful for it, because as, I, I don't want to imply, like, oh, I'm so far along in my, my whole four years of my career, but even at the point where, you know, I I am four years into my career, I can actually, it's a little cringy and it definitely makes me like tense up my shoulders, but I can actually say like, I am proud of the growth that I've made. I have learned a lot. I have some skills. I don't think I'm harming people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not harming people. (laughs) I know this, but it still feels very (laughs) self-indulgent to be like, I'm not harming anybody. (laughs) Um, But, I'm grateful for the imposter syndrome I've experienced because it has helped me learn so much about my strengths, mm-hmm. funnily enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also helped me kind of go out of my comfort zone in like approaching clinicians that I respect. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for the people I met along the way, because now I have a whole group of people where if I have a session and it finishes up and I'm kind of like, you know, I, I, I feel like I wasn't on my game I, mm. and more than just like, oh, I had an off day or something like that. I feel like I did something you know, wrong, I'll say. Mm. Um, I have at least 10 people that I could reach out to ethically, obviously without identifying information. I feel like that goes without saying, but I'll mm. say it anyway um, <laughs> and kind of like do a little case consultation and learn some stuff and be able to take, you know, if, if somebody wants to say like, wow, Emma, that was maybe not the greatest, awesome. Thank you very much. And then I can address it with my client next time. Mm. Um, yeah. So i that was a very long-winded answer because of who I am as a person, and I apologize. Mm. But, yeah, I think that imposter syndrome can kind of open the door for a lot of growth. If, mm. if that's like leaned into,
0: mm. I guess. That's a key word if you lean into it. Because, again, it can yeah. lead to the same kind of defensiveness that you know someone who doesn't have impulsive syndrome or who doesn't have any anxiety is going to have like it's important to be able to take feedback but then i think and again this can be another topic for another time but then you know we have to be able to differentiate what's feedback and what is critical feedback versus what is something that is more personal or a abuse of power or um and you know therapists never do that um but (laughs) but yeah so i think that that that's that's really important in that um yeah yeah Yep, that, I, absolutely.
1: Great. Yeah. Well, thank you both for sharing today. Um, why don't we leave off with um, what is a way people can challenge imposter syndrome?
0: So if I, yeah, if I had like one, I think one thing I've shared with a lot of my clients and one thing I would say to other providers navigating imposter syndrome and in general is to keep in mind that Anyway, this is a very generalized statement um but i think in general people don't know what they're doing and i don't mean that in a bad like not in a bad negative way but i mean people just we we're all learning right we we're all we're, we're learning whether again we're learning as therapists or we're learning as you know whatever we are all having to learn as we go whether we're five ten fifteen twenty years into something and a lot of times we don't know what we're doing and that's okay. Um, so that's the big thing is that, you know, and for people to remember that, uh, that if it feels like you don't know what you're doing. Most people around you don't know either. And if they act like they do, there could be something off about that.
2: The way I frame it to my clients a lot is no one knows what the hell they're doing. If somebody looks like they do, they're just a better faker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> yep. if anyone's getting free therapy from today, I feel like what you said completely sums it up. Um something I would add is just like we all have these big beautiful brains. They do a lot of awesome things for us, but sometimes they play tricks on us and imposter syndrome can be one of those tricks. Mm. Uh, yeah. so just have people around you that you trust and can kind of bounce some of those imposter syndromey kind mm. of thoughts off of. Yeah. Absolutely. Very well put.
0: <laughs> very last quick thing I'll add and then we can definitely end um it probably was clear from the conversation but I don't know if we actually intro not introduce it but if we share this tidbit of information prior um so Emma and I actually have worked in other capacities and other agencies um so that's where really
1: our- I would oh. never have thought <laughs> <Shock it laughs> off. right
0: so um so that's why as we're kind of recounting some of this we you know kind of realizing okay. that the other person knew of that thing or was involved in that thing. Um, it's yeah, because we've, we've had some of those same experiences in the same place. Um, so just some background on that. I wasn't sure we made that clear yeah. to our audience and it was like,
2: no, that's good.
0: <laughs> and what are they talking about? Like what, you know, but yeah, so I, I that's, that's, I think where a lot of our experiences overlap, um, between uh-huh. us, uh, between us specifically. But again, I've talked to providers working at various places, having experienced yeah. some of these things. So, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, oh. I just wanted to throw that in.